Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Charlotte from the Ancestor Project. What an absolute delight to have you on the podcast, Charlotte. I'm a big fan of yours. What's popping today? It is mutual. Thank you so much for having me. A huge fan of yours as well. And I'm having a beautiful day so far. How about you? Hell yeah, me too. Well, I actually wanted to get you on the podcast in person a few months ago because I saw that we were both in Zipolite, Oaxaca at the same time. And I thought it would be awesome to do a podcast naked because Zipolite is a destination for nakedness for those unfamiliar. And I thought it would just be kind of funny to let it all hang out but not have to censor anything because it's a podcast. So let's start off talking about nakedness and nudism because apparently it's such a threatening subject to so many people and I know that you have some knowledge on this subject why do you think nakedness is so taboo in western culture and in United States society and a lot of societies and what has drawn you to nudism personally mm, yeah that would have been awesome especially since Zipolite I think now is in like major recovery mode after that hurricane so I'm glad that I made it there before before that happened my husband is totally who who drew me towards nudity. It's something that, or nudism, it's something that I would never have considered or thought about. A lot of my journey with medicine and healing processes is around healing my relationship to my body. And so the idea of being naked with strangers in a public place was truly terrifying. But once I tried it out it was also so incredibly liberating you know our bodies are of the earth and it's such a beautiful way to connect so deeply and closely with the elements to have all of yourself uh out and exposed i feel like the the rhetoric around the body is you know so much a part of colonization like if we think back, many, many of our ancestors were existing naked or partially naked because that's what was natural. Like you come into this world without clothing, um, why like cover up this gorgeous creation? And we just got into this very like puritanical view on bodies and that there's like sin attached to the body and shame attached to the body and it has convinced many people that it is something that should be hidden and repressed. Um, it's funny, just today, this morning, I was reading an article about the feminist view on transpersonal psychology and how important it is as we like move, you know, one of the benefits of moving more towards matriarchal uh, societies could be this reclaiming of the body as this beautiful source of creation. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to remind myself to, to move in that direction. On social media and just in pop culture, I find it so egregiously ridiculous that like male nipples are totally fair game, but a female nipple is going to get you flagged. And I saw someone post a meme that resonated with me where it's like, here's like a Photoshop printout of an acceptable male nipple that you can put over your female nipples and that way your photos won't get flagged because I think everyone can agree everyone can agree that's pretty ridiculous and pretty overt right there and like full disclosure I don't practice nudism it's not something that you know I'm particularly attracted to at this moment but like having been in Zipolite there is something really different about just seeing people and families and couples just like walking chilling and it's no big deal and they're walking around naked and like as someone raised in san diego like you know that's very outside of my regular culture regular understanding so of course i just thought that was something because i knew that you have been invested in it and you've been going down there i wanted to talk about it a little bit so i do have dreams where i'm naked in public though and that shit is scary man there's something going on there <laughs> <laughs> oh i agree the like fear of of being naked in a place where you're not supposed to quote unquote supposed to be naked but it is really beautiful to go to those places where it is seen as 
just normal. And I love seeing families on nude beaches because babies love being naked. Little kids love, they don't, they don't get why they have to like put clothes on and shoes on all the time. So I think it's also a way to like engage with that inner child and that playfulness. Oh, that inner child. So important. Yeah. I'm still trying to always figure out how to engage my inner child, you know? So uh, let's talk about when we were, when we were scheduling this podcast, you mentioned to me that you were getting ready to go on an Ibogaine retreat. And that's not something you hear every day, right? Like it's still not widely practiced. Maybe that's a good thing, you know, but I would love to hear about just a few of your experiences there, maybe about the overall retreat experience. And how did you get involved in going to an Ibogaine retreat? And what were some of your, you know, highlights or takeaways from it? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that attracted me to this retreat specifically was that they actually work with Iboga. So they're working with the the root plant material and not with an like an alkaloid. So I try when possible with all medicines to always work with the natural full plant and not like this extractive approach to how we quote unquote create these medicines, which I feel like we'll tie back into the conversation later when we talk about the industry as a whole. So this retreat was in Costa Rica at a place called Sol Centro. The main facilitators are Buiti initiates. Buiti is one of the traditions in Gabon, where the medicine is worked with in an initiatory process as a medicine for rite of passage. And really coming back to the root of this root, which is not necessarily to be an addiction interruption treatment. And, you know, I come from a background working in harm reduction and like on the ground opioid overdose prevention work. And so I am, of course a fan of finding all of the ways that these plants can be worked with to support illness in general. And I really wanted to go to a place where the focus was more so on the ancestral practice of the medicine and the ceremonial practice and not the, you know, just the ibogaine and that their main, their main focus is addiction interruption. It was so intense. (laughs) Um, I think it is a medicine that you don't hear folks Working with frequently because its main sort of the communication around it in the mainstream right now is for addiction interruption. And so people don't see it as like a ceremonial process. Um, and also because of, of that intensity factor. So I think what was m- most challenging is the length of time that the medicine is active, which is like 24 to 48 hours. You're not in peak experience for that whole time, but it is really working through you on a mental, emotional, and physical level. What was incredibly beautiful about it is like the directness of the medicine. It took me a little bit to like get into this space because I think after you work with medicine for a long time, you have certain sort of, as much as you want to let go of expectations, you have this like sort of framework of understanding of how these medicines might unfold. And Iboga is none of that. It was, so that was like a little bit of a hurdle. I feel like it has really gotten down into the roots of my shadow and some habits and behaviors that other medicines have certainly made me aware of, but I've felt in this integration period like a greater capacity to really make shifts in those behaviors and those habits and a shift in energy towards the importance of that. And speaking of the body, it's like, you know, it got me very in my body and thinking about the importance of preserving the body to the best of our ability so that we're able to continue doing this work and continue in our, you know, being the carriers of spirit. You know, I was surprised to find out that in Rosarito and Tijuana, which is those places are very close to where I grew up. There are uh, there are a number of ibogaine treatment centers primarily focused on addiction disruption as you mentioned and I I think it's more like they put you in a room and you take a couple of capsules of extract and I know it's turned into quite a large gray market business because 
addiction recovery centers are so expensive in the U.S. And there's a whole medical tourism industry that's emerged in the border communities as a result of that. Like I go to the dentist in Tijuana, he's a personal friend, and so many people are looking for that, you know, anything that'll work and they do the research, you know, up until we had just talked about this, I'd never heard of Sol Centro, right? Or, or a place in Costa Rica or like going to Africa or Gabon would be that much more difficult, right? I don't think there's necessarily like a tourism infrastructure set up around it. And if there is, it's not affordable for a lot of people. Again, this is arguably a good thing, but I just think it's, it's fascinating that these, you know, this ibogaine is, is so powerful and so important ancestrally, but it's sort of somehow been expropriated into this gray market uh, addiction disruption service, basically. And that uh, I, I was just very surprised to learn that in Rosarito, you can go check into a you know luxury house in, in the hills overlooking the sea and you could do your 30 day treatment program with a bunch of ibogaine sessions. Yeah, yeah. It is really interesting. And, you know, I think it's important. So I, I, uh, iboga and ibogaine is a medicine that, especially when worked with for addiction disruption interruption, can have potentially fatal um, impact. So especially if you're like working through withdrawal, potential relapses, like all these. So it's important that there is this clinical setting that people can go to who need that extra support. Especially because if you went to Gabon, they're not like asking for an EKG and a full blood labs, you know, because their focus of working with the medicine is for connecting with the ancestral realm, getting into your roots and your lineage um, and, you know, working with this medicine as, as initiation and rites of passage. So I feel like it's important with all of the medicines that there are different options for different needs that people have like some people will do better in a clinical setting or need a clinical setting to help them build trust that's personally not the route that i'm <laughs> that i work through um or the realm that i work in but i'm grateful for the different sort of pathways and doorways into medicine work it's a great perspective to have right because there are so many different people who need such different solutions in their own lives right and it's like one thing is not going to work for everyone that's for sure so Let's talk about the Ancestor Project because I've been following since y'all were called the Sabina Project uh, quite a while ago. And I've, I've witnessed tremendous growth just from afar watching your organization, just seeing how much you've grown and what an impact you've had on the community. And like you've been going all over the place. I know you were down in Colombia and you've been down in Mexico. You just mentioned Costa Rica, you know, different cities in the U.S. And we have a bunch of mutual friends, great people doing, you know, amazing work that both of us are supporting. So I would love to hear, like, how did you first get involved with Sabina Project, AKA Ancestor Project? Like, what's the origin story of this whole thing? Yeah, the origin story, I have been working with psychedelics since I was 18. Really with sacred medicine since I was like 14, but I would say in a more like conscious and intentional way in the last few years. And I had, in 2018, I had a few mushroom journeys where the medicine and the people, the community that I was with, were really like, we need these medicines in black and brown communities more. And how do we do that? And the medicine sort of called me to that task. And so I was just you know, sitting with that and was working out of a co-working space and somebody came in one day with combo marks on their arm. And combo is a frog medicine that also has origins in the Amazon region and is a non-psychedelic. Um, it's an emetic or a purgative medicine. But anyway, I, I saw these marks on their arm and I remember seeing something similar on National Geographic when I was in high school. And I had just started doing some reading around the intersection of race and psychedelics. And I made a flippant comment that like they had probably gone to some white shaman. And they were like, no, I went to this guy named Dre here in Baltimore. And if you want, I, I can connect you. 
And I was like, yeah, that would be great. Please do. And so, you know, a week or two later, I got a phone call from an unknown number. And it was Dre, who is my Ancestor Project partner, calling to be like, oh, blah, blah, gave me your number and said that you wanted to talk about ceremony and something, something. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about combo, but also, you know, I've been feeling this this call to support others in ceremony. And he started to actually kind of go in on me about like, what training do you have? What elders do you sit with? What lineage do you practice in? And I didn't have a response to any of that because that's not the background that I had come from or my that was not my path into the medicine. My path in was like warehouse raves and small burner scene things uh, here in Baltimore and DC. And so, you know, he gave me a, uh, you know, a little talking to about the responsibility of holding space for others and the importance to practice within lineage and to have elders and and all these things. So we agreed to meet up in person. And when we met up in person, it was just this sort of like instant click. And really our first, our first experience of working together was that I went to sit in ceremony with him and to sit through my first combo session. And that was back in 2019. And from there, we just like, we went to a conference together in DC about people of color and psychedelics. And we went to a workshop about um, running community integration circles. And we just started to like, play with this idea of, of what we could do, like recognizing that there was this huge gap in our community that we both recognized from our own experience, which was in predominantly white spaces always. And... I think we also just like, we were hyped to find another black person who wanted to talk about plant medicines and spirit and all these things. So yeah, we just built this friendship really. And then from that, we we started the Ancestor Project. Beautiful. And since you just touched on it, let's dive into it about psychedelics and race, because it's an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people, but all the more reason why I think we should dive into it right now. I used to teach high school at an equity project school in San Diego called High Tech High. And, you know, more than 51% of the students qualified for free and reduced lunch. A lot of students from the most marginalized neighborhoods and, and zip codes in San Diego. And my director was this super awesome, super wild black dude from Jacksonville, Florida. And we, I became very accustomed to having these uncomfortable conversations and like talking about institutionalized racism, talking about redlining, you know, having students coming from a barrio or from, you know, even crossing the border from Tijuana who just didn't like me because I was a white male classroom teacher. Right. And like just having to have these conversations. And I think it's important that we dive into a little bit. So I know that you're very involved in this discussion in this space. You've got the psychedelic anti-racism workbook out, which is available on the ancestor project website. Some people that I've talked to, and just I think everybody hears this talking point say psychedelics and race shouldn't mix like psychedelics should be about transcending race and about, you know, shedding this culture and this and that, you know, I'm also very embedded with a lot of other kind of like more radical psychedelic activists and practitioners here here on the West Coast and places like Oakland and Portland and whatnot. I would just wonder, like, what would you say to people who say that psychedelics and race don't mix? And why is it important that we have these conversations? And what what are some other talking points that we should be aware of when we're approaching psychedelic anti-racism? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm glad that you brought up this conversation around transcendence, um, which is like a big, a big talking point in the psychedelic space and ego death and etc. And, you know, you'll hear people... They'll be like, oh, well, you know, race and gender and da-da-da doesn't exist in the 5D. So, like, why are we constantly bringing it up here? And, like, if we stop talking about these things, they just won't exist because you create your reality with your words and your... And, you know, I think the beauty of working with sacred earth medicines is getting deeper in touch with your humanity and deeper in touch with what it is to live a human experience and part of that human experience in our current landscape is that structural racism is very real that there are many groups of people that still experience severe oppression at a 
ideological level, at an institutional level, at an interpersonal level, and then we get into how we've all internalized oppression as well. And this is sort of where we break the conversation down to, to make it a little bit more accessible to people, that we have all, over the span of time and history, have all experienced colonization to different degrees and have all internalized the systems and the structures that we exist in, and then assist in the replication of those systems and structures. And it is important that each of us recognizes that internalization and takes on that responsibility of beginning to decolonize the self and really question, like, where do these beliefs that I hold and project into the world come from? Are they serving me? Are they serving our collective? And is there a way for me to broaden my perspective to welcome in the experiences of others so that I can be an ally in the movement towards collective liberation? And it's funny because before we recorded this, I was showing my husband some of your videos and there was one about... um, connecting with your ancestors, the Dr. Bronner's peppermint spray and connecting with your ancestors and the sort of gibberish that they were transmitting and, you know, seeing this as like, okay, now I get why, why we're constantly appropriating from other cultures. One of the things that I really like to focus on and that we talk about in the Psychedelic Anti-Racism Workbook is this idea that Whiteness is completely made up. Just as much as blackness is made up, whiteness is is a is a construct. And I agree, like, race is a construct, gender is a construct, time is a construct, but these are constructs that guide our world in this moment, right? And... But that if we go far enough back in any people's history, we get back to indigenous roots, to some land and some place, and back to an animist tradition, like pre-Abrahamic traditions. What plants were your ancestors working with? What songs were they singing? What offerings were they making to the earth? And that this can help people who are more resistant to this conversation get to a place of, you know, it's not about alienating, it's not about publicly shaming, but it is about bringing an awareness to the realities that we exist in right now and what tools can we use and what ancestral connections can we lean on to move us away from the paradigms that don't support any of us really. I think the last question in the the workbook is why is racism bad for you? And that that's like more so a question for white embodied individuals to really sit with like you know, on a structural and systemic level, like, racism doesn't really seem that bad for white presenting white embodied folks. But like, ultimately, it really doesn't serve any of us. And so really starting to like pick that apart and find what your unique offering can be towards collective liberation. Let's talk about the emerging psychedelic industry here, because There's so much going on and it's amazing how quickly it's been fast-tracked. Even two years ago when I started the podcast, it felt like this leap of faith for me to publicly speak about my relationship with psychedelics. And now there's like fucking Sports Illustrated and ESPN talking about Aaron Rodgers winning MVP because of ayahuasca. Like this just amazing leap, right? And like the way that it's been embraced in culture. And there's a lot of different touch points there we could dive into. But one thing that I did notice is I went out to the Meet Delic conference in Las Vegas. I got invited out and it was awesome to be there. But it was very much like an industry VC white presenting space and there's no way around that but then i went to the california psychedelic conference organized by oakland hyphae and it's a completely different community right as far as the representation of different demographics and this and that and the other but i've become more active on linkedin just kind of like putting the feelers out there seeing what and it's wild like how different linkedin is from instagram and i started like seeing all these different rankings like you know there's a ranking of like the top five psychedelic podcasts the most 100 influential people in psychedelics i know there was a lot of controversy made about this list 
but I had not actually looked at the list. And like the first 10 people are all white males. And I believe all heterosis white males, right? And like, I've been looking at other people's kind of podcasts and who they've had on. And like, it's, I'm hard pressed to find a person of color. So it almost feels like they're siloed off in a lot of ways. Like you have this like white industry of people, you know, running hedge funds and investment analysts who are interested in the disruptive potential of psychedelics. And then you have like people working with the Ancestor Project in Oakland Haife who have like created your own spaces. And I, I, I could be misinformed about this, but like I'm not seeing a tremendous amount of like, you know, connectivity between the two, which I suppose would be awesome to see personally. But what are some of your hot takes? You know, this is a safe space to drop them if you want about like the emerging psychedelic industry and the way that entheogens and psychedelics are starting to be promoted and tapped for sort of their value in an industrial capitalist system? Oh, that's a big one. Um, so, for me, uh, Sacred Earth Medicines really asked me to like deinstitutionalize my thinking and deinstitutionalize my life. And so I do struggle to understand how we're going to take these beautiful, mystical uh, allies, medicines that the earth has given us and then like silo them into a clinical and capitalist framework. I don't really have that many answers. There definitely is not, I would agree that there's not much intersection happening. There's a lot of like community led and community based organizations. And then there are the clinical capitalist route of of working with these medicines i mean if we look at the process of colonization through history typically the end point is commodification and capitalization and so it, it feels like we're right in in the thick of that right as like everyone sort of like money grabs at this new and emerging space Um, there's a lot of very like colonist rhetoric about it, right? Like this discovery of something new. Um, also a lot of problematic language around these medicines being a magic pill or compared to things like Prozac and SSR and other SSRIs, right? And really that what that does is just like take, take these medicines and then put them back into the framework that is not serving us and i'm not sure what where the disruption of these disruptive uh industries is gonna happen and at the same time the medicine has taught me and and the integration of my journeys has taught me that it is not always helpful to focus a lot of energy on what other people are doing and i feel like that side of the industry, even calling it an industry is strange, but that side of the space has a lot of capital right now, which means that they hold power. And I could spend all of my time trying to like dismantle that, or I could spend my time pouring into the needs of my community and providing the tools to like get free and to have more people beginning to question why things are the way that they are and what is each of our role in in dismantling that i think the other piece i wanted to touch on from the previous question is this you know why is it important to be talking about race and sacred medicines you know, at the root of a lot of the conversation is how we're working with these allies to alleviate the symptoms of mental illness in contemporary society. And you can't really treat mental illness without looking at poverty and discrimination and oppression and how those are really the the source, the root of depression and anxiety and PTSD and and all these other things that so many of us are are working through right now. 
So I feel like I really want to focus my energy in doing that for my community and not trying to figure out like how I, you know, push back against these multi-million dollar companies that are patenting soft furniture and holding hands. You know, that's such a wonderful way to look at it. And it's something that I've recently settled on myself because I sort of have this tenacious quality where like I want to go after, I, I you know, I'm a, I believe in the underdog. I love the underdog story and I want to go after these big faceless conglomerates, but like to what end? Like it just kind of sucks out of your energy. I don't think they're necessarily going to change the way they're doing things. And that's where I've landed on satire is just being something that I really like doing. It comes naturally to me. It's fun. And I'm just drawing from a lot of these experiences I've had over the years. Right. But like at the end of the day, if I had an option between spending my time doing something that makes me laugh and makes people laugh and like I can embed some points in there versus like getting super serious because I get fucking angry. Like when I, you know, take on these larger companies as we all do because it feels like you know the progress is made in glacial very slow very slow progress but uh it is what it is and i just at the end of the day like i want to have a, a meaningful you know laughter and a, a, a beautiful tie to my community through laughter and that's where i'm stacking my chips so let's talk about community right now because that's something you're so deeply invested in and you're doing extraordinary work through the ancestor project especially in these heavily impacted communities who aren't used to doing plant medicine necessarily, or certainly not in the last couple of years or generations, right? And, um, you know, I'm from California and I went to school in the Bay Area and there's a very permissive attitude in San Francisco where I went to school about psychedelics and entheogens. Like it wasn't outside of the realm of conversation. It was very normal, right? To be near Haight Street and Golden Gate Park and all that and have the, the legacy of the summer of love and all that. But I don't really have a frame of reference for like the community and and psychedelic culture on the East Coast, right? I've had a few people on the program, William Padilla Brown and a few other people. And I'd just love to hear like when you first got into this in Baltimore, were you kind of like feeling like an outsider that you were talking about sacred earth medicines? And how has that changed since you started Ancestor Project? Are people more willing to look at these ancestral ways of healing than maybe they were couple years ago yeah for sure yeah what you were saying about when you started this podcast a few years ago that you were like nervous about sort of as people say coming out of the psychedelic closet uh and and sharing more publicly about this i was in a similar space i was very open like with immediate friends and sort of with family that you know, I was, um, back then I would have referred to it as experimenting. Now I would say like picking up the ancestral breadcrumbs to come to this path. And so when we first started the ancestor project, yeah, there was a lot of like, I wasn't that nervous about it, but there were a lot of people who we're like, wow, you're so brave for sharing these things. And you're so, because we don't have a large community in Baltimore or, or we didn't have a large community of people. Like I wasn't going to medicine circles here. I wasn't, there was a little bit of that happening, but again, in predominantly white spaces that I wasn't privy to. And so again, like finding Dre was, you know, we were like, oh, a friend. <laughs> I can talk all my weird shit and you're going to get what I'm saying. Um, and there are some folks, yeah, like Will and um, and others who are, are pushing the conversation out here. But it was a little bit sort of lonely. And all of my early experiences were facilitated by white folks. And by facilitated, I don't mean like in a ceremonial setting, but like my connection to getting to places where medicine was happening or where people were, you know, taking MDMA to rave or whatever was like always through. Even my first, my first experiences with cannabis were all through white folks and in white communities. And so I think I was just, my soul was like craving something different. And you know, whatever those quotes are about, like, when there's something that you need, make it. And so that was really, that was the impetus. Like, this is, this is something that's missing. We also, so we started 
thinking about this in like late 2019 and then we launched a few in-person events in Baltimore in early 2020. We were like very locally focused, very about building in-person community because we recognized that that's what was missing. And that is really, the education piece is super helpful and I'm glad that we have an online platform where we can do that. And the healing work really does happen like in person and in ceremony and in integration circles and communities that you can return to and build medicine family with. And so we were kind of bummed when really we paused everything when the pandemic started because we were like it's not possible to do this online like this work can't happen virtually and I'm glad that we got over that and started offering BIPOC integration circles because there's a bell hooks quote about that healing has to be communal it has to happen in community And that's so much a part of the way that we've been disconnected from each other is that we don't exist in communities like we once did. And so part of the beauty of of these medicines is that it can bring us back into that, what for many of us is an ancestral practice of living in, you know, almost like recreating the village and the values that come with that communal living. And part of that is ceremony, a huge part of it, right? It's like ceremony and healing in community. But for so many people who get started with entheogens or psychedelics, sacred earth medicines, in my own case, right, it was more like I heard about them. I went on Arrowhead. I knew that they would have some kind of effect on me and I took a large dose and they had a huge profound effect on me. But then I didn't understand this concept of integration. No one talked about it. Um, I didn't really ever, you know, you go to Arrowhead and read trip reports and like nobody talks about integration. And I remember doing a macro dose and having a very ecstatic visual experience and then going to high school the next day and just like kind of like, how do I, you know, how do I relate to my friends in high school right now who are, you know, more interested in beer pong than about like a transcendental psychedelic experience. And like, obviously, when I went to San Francisco, I found a little bit more of my tribe at that point in that time. But I just want to hear about like this, the importance of ceremony and like what are some best practices through your experiences of preparation and and holding space or having a ceremony so that people feel safe and feel like they can really connect with their community and have you know the the best healing experience possible yeah yeah i mean that first step of being able to to connect with community is also the ability to connect with yourself so many of us are like distrustful of ourselves because we've convinced that what we think and feel and know to be our truth is not welcome in the world that we exist in. And I definitely see preparation and integration as like two sides of the same coin and an ongoing process that we engage in before, during and after the actual ceremony. And you said it in, in the last question that a lot of the communities that we work in it's not that there is no history of working with these medicines or being in ceremony together it's just that we've been so far removed from that truth and so a lot of it for us is about remembering what the ancestors were doing and how they were moving through life and viewing the earth and their relationship to each other and to the land that we live in. And so ceremony is a really beautiful place to, to do that, that really deep work. And it is so important that it's done with deep respect and reverence for the medicine and also for the community members who are participating. So we, Um, At the Ancestor Project, we have a really extensive intake process that's really important to us where we look at holonic well-being. So what is the well-being of your, um, your body, your mind, your spirit, and also your community and your environment? Like that's really how we go from just personal healing and personal transformation into being stewards of collective liberation. And so we have folks go through this this extensive self-assessment, actually, and then we do preparation sessions, and then we have the medicine journey, and then we 
um, always do integration on the back end as well. And really helping folks to see how they can embody the lessons and the insights that are given to them by the medicine, by their ancestors, and also how we take those downloads and we turn them into daily action. So what are the habits, beliefs, behaviors, narratives that no longer serve you that you're really excited to let go of? And not just to like void out the individual, but to make space for the habits, beliefs, behaviors, and narratives that you want to welcome into your life to begin constructing a world around you that reflects your true passions, that reflect your truth, your desires, and like really starting to be an active participant in your own life. I feel like doing that can be incredibly empowering because we do live in a world where it can frequently feel like you are just a subject of these uncontrollable powers that be that decide your well-being, decide your access, decide all of these pieces um, that make up a, a healthy, balanced life. And it's important to start to recognize where we do have the power to make our own choices and to really direct and, you know, not in a, not in a forceful way, um, in a way that opens you up to, to being with what is allowing what needs to come to fruition and come into your life to do that. And to not be like, and at the same time to not be on autopilot and just sort of floating, floating through existence, allowing others to, to define who you are and how your life will play out. What a brilliant answer. Yeah, that was, I can, t- I can tell that you spent a lot of, I can tell that you spent a lot of time thinking about that and it shows too. And like in my own life, I used to be really interested in high dose experiences, specifically with psilocybin mushrooms, because I found so much value so early on. But I've talked to a number of people who have shared this sentiment that like as I've gotten older and sort of my routines and habits have like crystallized a little bit, like I'm married, you know, I, you know, have my family here and my habits and my friend circles. Like I'm way more interested in like smaller doses now than just like always trying to like seek out the next like life changing, earth shattering thing. So that's just something I had noticed. And um, but I'm still always trying to learn from the people uh, that I have on the podcast and people I connect with because you can take bits and pieces from everyone and learn and incorporate them into your practices. And to that end, one more vital component of ceremony I want to talk about because it is omnipresent pretty much in rituals and ceremonies across indigenous cultures is sound and music. And I'd love to hear a little bit about in your experiences, uh, what kind of soundscapes or what kind of music do you like to have on when you go into ceremony? And of course, you know, there's different ways of approaching this. There's the drum, there's the rattle, there's the chanting, sometimes a mix of all three. But just what I always like to ask people about music and specifically in this context, let's talk about music during ceremony. What are some of the the insights you have about this topic? I love this topic. I have a lot of, I don't know if you can see, I don't even know if this if the video, there is a ditch behind me, but I also have, I have my rattle, my flute, my um, crystal bowls are out next to me. I have some Tibetan bowls behind me. So I'm about, I'm about the sound. It really depends. I feel like it depends partially on the medicine. So there are some medicines, for example, circling back to Iboga, one of the most challenging parts of that for me was the music that the... Um, the traditions that work with Iboga have learned to be the technology that works with the medicine. Like if you go to an ayahuasca ceremony, there will be, if you go to a a traditional ayahuasca ceremony that is run by well-trained facilitators, there will most likely be be Icaros present and potentially people singing Icaros as well as like a form of chanting almost Um, And with Iboga, they have their music that is very intense and fast paced and um, has its own specific instruments that are worked with. 
you know, our, our bodies, what's that book? Your body keeps the score. Our bodies remember. So if we think about sound as being, uh, a frequency, a vibration that we feel through our bodies and in our cells, that would mean that our cells might remember the sounds that our ancestors had heard. And that's what helps to, can help to, to move with the medicine or, or bring you to certain places in the journey. I am a big fan, especially with uh, little teachers or psilocybin, of doing some ancestral research and creating like ancestrally based playlists that can really help to get into that lineage work, might even help to bring up uh, intergenerational trauma that folks are looking to work through because, yeah, your body remembers that that music and remembers what it is to be in ceremony and in ritual. So, yeah, ancestrally-based playlists are really beautiful. Silence, though, is also really beautiful. I feel like it's undervalued. Um, having moments of just quiet in a journey and seeing where the medicine wants to take you when it's not being directed by sound. Because that's really how sound can can play into the journey is that the medicine helps to direct where the medicine is going and, and what it's going to help you look at. So, you know, you'll hear a lot of like the Johns Hopkins playlist is like a lot of really, a lot of it is sort of depressing classical music. <laughs> but like, if you're, if you're trying to get to the root of someone's depression, it may help to like, get into that really sad place that you can look at that root cause and what's going on with those memories. Um, and I, and I like to do that as well, like not having a prescription of medicine, but being in ceremony with people and recognizing like what energy is present and then playing music that helps to carry that forward or to go deeper into that feeling or to help somebody come out of a loop if that's what's happening. So I feel like sound and frequency is, yeah, it's such an important part. And, and the ancestral sound is, is really important for helping people to dive deeper into that lineage work. Yeah, I, I have a lot of anxiety. So whenever I, you know, take mushrooms, uh, I like to have playlists on that are almost like those frequency playlists, just because it helps me kind of relax that anxiety and sink into that. And like, otherwise I have a busy mind and you're chattering a lot. And it's my understanding that that's what a lot of the chants of Icaros are for is like to help you quiet your busy mind and like focus your attention on that. And then it's directing you in a little, you know, and I also love to listen to uh, favorite bands, but I've gotten to a point where it's like, I don't want to beat a dead horse and like listen to the same thing I already know. Like I'm trying to find new ways to you know, look at things or new new insights. And sometimes new music helps that. I recently started listening to Brian Eno, who's like an ambient musician. Kind of always heard of them, but it works really well for me personally when I'm, when I'm in an altered state is like, it helps me to relax is a huge thing. And like, otherwise I'll get like, if I put on a different type of music, I might get super hyped up and it might direct the trip that way. It's like, you know, diff different strokes for different folks, I think at the end of the day. So we're hitting a sw the sweet spot here and uh, I've hit you with a lot of like pretty deep conversation topics here. So I appreciate you rolling with me because I just think you're an awesome person and the work you're doing is so important. And like, let's go, you know, we don't have to do the same regular regular like, interview questions here like like let's hit some heavy topics and i think we did so the last thing i want to dive into is um what's on the horizon for the ancestor project y'all have so many different things that you've been invested in and i'm sure there are things that you're working on you can't even share with us but i would love it if you just gave us a little overview of some of the projects that we can look forward to over the next couple weeks or months with the ancestor project yeah for sure i'm gonna send you some buiti music after this because the music for Iboga ceremony is made to quote unquote break your head or like get you out of your mind, which by the end of the first night of ceremony, I was like, I might punch somebody in the face if they don't turn this speaker off because it was so like forcing me out of my mindset, which was important ultimately. But while it was happening, I wasn't a huge fan of it. 
So what's next for the Ancestor Project? We'll be running another cohort of our psychedelic liberation training, which will open up in the next couple of months. And we are working on getting retreats together for 2023. So obviously one of the challenges of being a U.S.-based sacred earth medicine organization is that we can't super openly talk about all of the medicines that we work with and that we want to share with our community. And so we are working on finding the places where we can safely do that and where our community would be welcome. Um, and in a way that's still accessible, you know, a lot of these retreat centers are like very nice and also cost $30,000 for a week. And that just starts to become, um, yeah, definitely inaccessible for our community. So trying to find that balance so that we can invite more folks into ceremony and to really do that, that work of remembering where we come from and what our purpose is here in this lifetime and in being stewards of collective liberation. So I think those are like the two big, two big things. And then we have monthly classes and weekly integration circles. So folks are welcome to join us in those ways on a more regular basis. And yeah, this is, this is a fun time. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, Charlotte, for gracing us with your presence here. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to all of the great offerings that Ancestor Project has out there in the world and seeing all your trajectory and continued growth and prosperity for the Ancestor Project and for you and Dre. Thank you so much. Appreciate you and appreciate all your comedy. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.